0: MSW Media.
1: Is Donald Trump really going to start a war with Iran? Can he do that even if Congress says no? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. She's back on the campaign trail, at least for the next couple months. So we are going to be bringing in our first guest. We've got two guests lined up today on an important topic the potential of a war with Iran, and the extent of the president's power to engage in offensive military operations without congressional approval. But before I do that, I just want to take a minute to thank our patrons who brought this episode to you. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Fromier, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron, you can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So let's bring in our first guest. Steve Ladek is the A. Dalton Cross Professor of Law at the University of Texas Law School. And he is a, you know, a researcher and a teacher on topics like national security law, military justice, and constitutional law and he's a nationally recognized expert on the role of federal courts in the war on terrorism. He's got a host of publications, and he also happens to be co-editor-in-chief of a publication uh, that, I, uh, that I am part of uh, called Just Security, uh, where you can read a lot of his work. So let's bring in Professor Vladek. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Vladek. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out. Thanks for having me. A lot of people are, are wondering, you know, we, we, the president obviously had this attack. Uh, it, the Iranians are struck back. It, for right now, he isn't doing anything more. But people are concerned that Trump's going to start a war with Iran. If Congress says, well, what does the Constitution say? Actually, let's start this way. What, what does the Constitution say about uh, who has the power to uh, initiate offensive uh, military operations?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, one of the age-old debates in constitutional law. The the Constitution says pretty emphatically in Article One, Section 8, Clause 11, um, that Congress has the power to declare war. Uh, other provisions of Article One, Section 8 give Congress the power to fund our military, to regulate the military, to provide for its use during emergencies. But, you know, going all the way back to the founding, there's been a line of pretty widely accepted thought that... The word declare is in there on purpose and that there are at least some limited circumstances um, where the president's allowed to use military force, even if Congress hasn't authorized it, um, and that those circumstances are usually defined by you know, self-defense and circumstances in which the president's acting in um, defense of the country or of U.S. persons. Um, And the Supreme Court has at least blessed that view in, you know, a pretty old decision in 1863 called the Prize Cases. So I think that the short answer is that most of the war power, at least as a constitutional matter, lies with Congress. But that is pretty well accepted that there are at least some circumstances where the president's allowed to act on his own Whether or not Congress has authorized him to use military force in that situation,
1: it's interesting though. Like the way that most, I think most Americans think about it is, the president uh, is the one who makes the decision, and the president is the one who's ordering military operations. How is it that we've gone from a Constitution that puts the power to declare war in the hands of Congress to a a reality where it appears, uh, and I think it's not just how it appears, but I think the reality is, is that. Much of the authority to to engage in offensive military operations rests in the hands of the president
2: yeah, I mean I think it 's been a slow but steady drift, Renato I mean I think the you know this has been a, a real theme of life since World War II in the United States that we 've seen this steady but gradual uptick in invocations of what we might call unilateral war making authority by the executive branch, um, and we should say, and this has been across you know, Democratic and Republican administrations alike, I mean, this really isn't a partisan issue. Um, and I think there are two different reasons, or at least two different motivations for this for this trend. The first is that I think, you know, the president or successive presidents have found any number of situations that called for or warranted the use of military force, where either it was not big enough to involve Congress. Or where um, the force was you know needing to be used without the time it would take to go to Congress, or where it was possible that Congress might not approve the use of force, but also Congress has you know to a large degree um, surrendered or otherwise abdicated the role that I think the founders quite clearly meant for it to play in circumscribing the war powers, so you know the war powers as i'm fond of telling my students is one of the areas where the Constitution today. Um, is understood in a way that is so thoroughly antithetical to what the founders would have thought that you know when we talk about the original understanding of the Constitution, um, where we are today with the war powers, I think doesn't look anything like um, what the you know draft of the Constitution meant and what folks at the time of the Constitution thought we were doing, for better or for worse.
1: Yeah, is part of that uh, because uh, sort of America's role in the world and um, and military technology has changed to an extent. So I think that's part, There's no doubt, There's no question that's part of it. I mean, I do think that you know
2: it's not just the sort of geopolitical role of the United States, but also the ability to use military force with such a more modest commitment of resources, right? I mean, so you know the capacity to launch a drone strike halfway around the world um, is not something we had in 1800. But you know the flip side is. We did have this run of what we might call small uses of military force, what the Supreme Court actually for a time called imperfect war Um, early in the country's history, the quasi war with France um, at the turn of the 18th, 19th century, the, you know, the Barbary pirates. So it's not like this is all sort of completely unprecedented. It's just that I think Congress has largely acquiesced um, in a view of the war powers where you know, small, one-off, limited duration, limited intensity uses of military force by the executive are just not seen as constitutionally offensive. Um, And, you know, as that has accreted and as we've had more and more of those operations come and go without anything other than maybe some political pushback, um, you know, this trend has thickened um, and developed into a pretty substantial body of executive branch practice. Um, that, you know, has never really been vetted or tested in the courts, but that has at least a long line now of historical
1: precedents behind it. Yeah, and one point that I will make, you know, you mentioned that a lot of this hasn't been tested in the courts. You know, part of that, uh, just so listeners understand, is because courts don't want to get involved in weighing into these you know, disputes between the executive branch and the legislative branch of Congress over the extent of, you know, authority to engage in wars. It's sort of a political issue that courts try to stay out of. And also courts, I think, take a long time to resolve things. You know, realistically, courts don't resolve things quickly enough to make a practical impact on, you know, a a military operation that could be launched in a matter of days, minutes, or weeks, months, that sort of thing. Is that fair?
2: I, I, mean, I, think, I think the second point is true, although I'm not sure it's fatal. I mean, in a world in which we had you know, a meaningful damages regime where, say, someone whose property was destroyed in the use of you know, military force by the United States could at least recover damages, then I don't think the timing would be quite such a big deal. I think you know, the first point is probably the more important one, which is that... You know, for at least a half a century now, um, the Supreme Court really has not wanted to get in the middle of what it, I think, sees largely as an intramural, a series of intramural disputes between the political branches over the war powers. I mean, during the Vietnam War, for example, there were literally dozens of lawsuits where everyone from soldiers to states um, to, you know, civic uh, civil society organizations tried to challenge different aspects of the use of military force in Vietnam and other parts of Southeast Asia and you know those cases just never got resolved on the merits the the courts just thought it wasn't their job um, to step in to resolve these disputes at least until and unless there was a you know head on constitutional conflict between congress and the president I, I don't think we're not that's that's softened at all in the last 50 years if anything i think the current Supreme Court probably feels that even more strongly. And so we're left in this, I think, really uncomfortable position where the executive branch is not really legally checked, even as it claims ever more expansive authority to use military force, either with or without some kind of statutory authorization. And so instead, the only checks are political. Um, and, you know, not for the first time, one of the hallmarks of this administration has been the inefficacy of, you know, checks that in the of political checks that in the past actually might have constrained a wayward president.
1: Yeah, I think we one thing that this administration has done uh, a, a, an effective job of doing is showing us sort of. The limits of norms and political uh you know sort of whether you know political pressure and political costs and constraining a president and he's exposing i think you know the the true limits of presidential authority uh and I think you know now you know the, some of the measures that we're going to hear from from the congressman in a moment talking to us about you know, or sort of here's Congress's sort of efforts to try to do something about it. And it's not clear to me how successful they'll be. And so let's just talk about, you know, there's a vote today that he's going to talk to us about this uh, vote about a resolution that Senator Kane is the leader in the, uh, in the Senate, he, you know, and there's a, 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 a parallel provision in the House that's related to something called the War Powers Resolution. Can you kind of explain to us what the War Powers Resolution is and, and how this would relate to that?
2: Of course. I mean, so the the War Powers Resolution was Congress's first um, attempt to respond to the trend that we've been discussing. And so in 1973, toward the tail end of the Vietnam War, um, Congress, over President Nixon's veto, um, enacts a statute that basically tries to say, hey, Mr. President, if you're going to use military force without prior congressional authorization, we're going to impose some procedural and substantive limits. Um, And so procedurally, it creates a notification requirement where the president has to report to Congress within 48 hours um, that he has used military force in circumstances in which um, it either is part of or likely to incite further hostilities. Um, And then that starts a clock where at the end of a 60-day period, starting from the notification, um, if Congress has not done anything to authorize or at least ratify the president's use of force, um, his authority to use military force is supposed to expire. And then there's a separate provision, I think this is where one of the resolutions that's being voted on today is going, that allows Congress through a concurrent resolution, so a resolution that goes to both houses but not the president, um, to terminate uses of force even before those 60 days are up. Um, There are a couple of different problems with the War Powers Resolution. The first problem is that parts of it are almost certainly unconstitutional. Um, So, you know, the Supreme Court in 1983 in a case called INS versus Chadha, um, held that legislative vetoes are unconstitutional, and so that probably spells doom for the termination provision, the you know the the, the concurrent resolution part. Um, but also, I mean, the War Powers Resolution, even even if we read it for all its worth, that is, I say, even if it says the president can only use force for 60 days. Um, not really clear how that helps in a situation like this one, where at least based on where things stand as of you know this afternoon, um, the force that was at issue is largely over. Right? That is to say it really doesn't speak to the problem of short duration, low intensity uses of force, even in contexts in which there might be serious and significant blowback. Um, and so I think you know the war power resolution as you know, the the law scholar John Hart Ely wrote um, is just about the perfect example of how to write a War Powers Act that won't work. Um, right, that is to say that it was the right idea but the wrong implementation, because Congress didn't really solve the structural problem, which is reclaiming the prerogative even for relatively short duration, you know, short term uses of force. Um, that's you know. <laughs> Even a president who believes the War Powers Resolution is constitutional and abides with it, you know, jot and tittle, um, is not going to be stopped from short duration, low intensity uses of military force that you know last less than 60 days. And so, you know, the harder question is, how, if you're Congress, do you claim the authority? And do you reclaim the authority to scale back those kinds of operations
1: as well? That's interesting. Uh, you know, one concern, you know, I'm looking at questions from our listeners and one of our patrons, Jamie Gordon, had asked, well, what if, what if Trump just didn't comply? In other words, if there's a War Powers Resolution and, and Trump just ignored it, what, what, what could Congress do in that scenario?
2: I mean I think, you know, the, the a scenario where we actually are in a full on military conflict and we're on and we're up to day sixty one and so, you know, there's a widespread consensus that the letter of the war power resolution has been violated. You know, that I think at the risk of, of, of saying something that's gonna sound sillier today than it might have ever have before Probably a ground for impeachment. Huh. Um, you know, Congress. I think. I mean, Congress. I think could theoretically try to sue the president at that point. But just as the Supreme Court has been loath to step into these kinds of interbranch disputes over the war powers, I think the court would also not be in a big hurry to step into that kind of interbranch dispute, where from the court's perspective. Other remedies to wit, impeachment um, remain available. But again, and I don't mean to sort of uh, beat a dead horse, but I do think that, you know, the day 61 scenario, which is a real concern, um, is really like so so far down the list of what the problems are with our current war power set up that, you know, I think we, the, 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 the much bigger problem is the first 60 days. Um, when under current law, even if the War Power Resolution doesn't authorize the use of force, you know, it's not obvious that the president is necessarily doing anything illegal within those 60 days, even if he's using force that Congress would never approve, and even if he's using it in a way that is antithetical to America's national security and or foreign policy interests.
1: You know, John Mitchell, another one of our listeners, asked whether there, are, there ever has been a case in which courts have, Held that the president didn't have authority, like put a stop to a an attack that was that was ordered by a president. Uh, is has there? Are you aware of a of a court ever doing that?
2: So there's exactly one example in all of American history of an injunction, um, and it was actually during Vietnam, um, and it was to stop the bombing of Cambodia um, late in the conflict in in the fall of 1973, um, where there was a, a lawsuit filed by I think 26 members of Congress um, and. A district court in Brooklyn issued an injunction against the bombing. Um, the injunction was stayed pending appeal, and by the time it was resolved, the bombing was over. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a, of a soft precedent. But I mean, if we step back from the specific question of stopping and halting an ongoing military operation, there are precedents, um, and they mostly date to the 19th century, of federal courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular. Weighing in on the merits of individual uses of military force. So, you know, one of my favorite old cases is a early Supreme Court decision from 1804, a case called Little versus Barreem. Um, it's actually sometimes known as the case of the flying fish because that was the name of the of the ship. And this is a, an admiralty case where a U.S. Navy frigate um, seizes a French cargo ship in the middle of the quasi-war with France. Um, And the owner of the ship argues that the, the officer didn't have the legal authority to seize his ship because the way that the statutory authorization was written, it only allowed for the seizure of ships in one direction, not the other. Um, And the Supreme Court agrees. And Chief Justice Marshall, writing for unanimous court, not only says that the officer, you know, broke the law and that the military operation was unlawful, but he awards damages. Um, Now, you know, that's going to seem pretty strange to modern eyes and modern ears. But I guess, you know, that's just the point about how far we've come from the original understanding and from what I think the founders would have thought the judicial role ought to be in this context.
1: What, one other uh, argument that I've heard is that somehow the 2002 law that uh, – where Congress had authorized the use of military force in Iraq somehow authorized this present strike. Can you explain what that argument is or whether you th- and whether you think there's any uh, merit to it?
2: Sure. I mean so this is – you know the other part of the story and not just with regard to the Soleimani strike in Iran but with regard to the sort of drift of war powers more generally – is then we have circumstances where Congress actually does authorize the use of force, but they do it in a way that is so open-ended that it allows for different presidents across different administrations to really expand the statute beyond what Congress could ever have intended. So, you know, the two statutes that we often hear about in the context of contemporary military operations, one is, as you say, the 2002 Authorization to the Use Military Force Against Iraq, um, and that title should give away the punchline here, which is, you know, that was the statute Congress passed that authorized the Second Iraq War, the purpose of which was to take down Saddam Hussein's regime. Um, and there's also, of course, the 2001 AUMF, which Congress passed right after 9-11. To authorize these military forces against Al Qaeda, the Taliban, and you know those other groups associated with them that were responsible for the September 11th attacks, and you know the 2002 AUMF. I, here's the problem: folks gravitate toward that because it says Iraq. And if we're using military force in Iraq, well, man, that sounds like the 2002 AUMF. The problem is, is that the statute itself is actually much clearer that it's not just about uses of force in Iraq, um, but it's about uses of force against Iraq. So you know, if you actually pull up the text of the statute, Section 3, is the real sort of heart of the authorization. And it says, um, in a nutshell, the president's authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be necessary and appropriate in order to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. Um, So I think it's a little bit of a stretch to argue that an Iranian soldier um, working covertly and clandestinely in Iraq, presumably against the current Iraqi government um, is somehow a threat posed by Iraq within the terms of that statute, um, but you know Ryan Goodman and I actually have a piece that 'll be up on just security um, probably by the time this podcast is posted that walks into more detail why that argument really just doesn 't hold water um, but you know there's a larger point to be made here which is the mere fact that we're having this conversation when you know the obama administration said we should repeal the 2002 iraq aumf when the house voted last year to repeal this statute when we still have the 2001 aumf on the books that hasn't been touched even though we're now over 18 years into that conflict I think really gets back to the broader point here, which is that part of why it has become so easy for presidents of both parties to claim a wide array of war powers um, is because Congress has just not done its job institutionally in, you know, either one, cutting off the president's ability to act unilaterally, or two, even when Congress is authorizing of military force. constraining and circumscribing those authorizations in a way that are meaningful and enforceable. And so, you know, one of the things I think Congress should be thinking about is not just how to respond to this current situation, but how to actually think about all um, use of force authorizations going forward. Should they have sunsets? for example, so that the inertia would require Congress to reauthorize as opposed to just keep the thing on the books? Um, should there be some kind of geographic restrictions built in so that the president has to go back to Congress if he wants to expand the theater, if the theater has expanded? You know, These are the kinds of conversations that I think we ought to have been having for much of the last two decades. And I think the Soleimani strike is just another painful example of how not answering these questions. Um, the necessary consequences just to drift all of this power to the executive branch.
1: Wow, you know one one uh, effort that uh, Congressman Khanna is uh, going to be talking to us about is he, he has an effort to try to defund uh, 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 you know any any military operation against Iran and I you know he, you know he I, I think uh, you know points to an example in which this is done I think against Nicaragua and Vietnam and so forth, you know, other prior, uh, prior effort, you know, instances in which Congress has done that. Does Congress really have the authority to do that? And is that something that could be a successful way for Congress to, you know, assert its power over the executive, re, re, you know, relating to the offensive military operations like this one?
2: So, I mean, I think there's no question that Congress Congress's strongest footing when it comes to its constitutional authority in this space. Um, it is the power of the purse. And so, is the power to refuse to fund or to defund particular military operations, um, the power to sort of deprive the executive branch of funds if it undertakes certain steps or certain operations. Um, the, the two catches there is one, that doesn't account for funds that have already been appropriated. Um, and so, you know, it's possible that that would only be a forward looking measure. Um, but two, we've actually seen this administration argue, I think, to some degree in a manner that's novel, um, that there are going to be some contexts where even spending restrictions might be unconstitutional. Um, And so, you know, I think there's still, even that would get us back to the the question of, suppose Congress says you can't spend this money, right? Suppose the executive branch spends it anyway. um, Will the courts step in or are we back to the same problem of what are the political costs? Um, And then stepping back one step further, I mean, I think the other piece of this is Part of why I think Congress has been so reluctant to really assert itself in these spaces, and and I think this will come up again on the funding side, is because of the politics of it, right? That, you know, it is very, very easy um, as a matter of politics to just blame everything on the executive branch, right? The, you know, we'll leave it to them. We're not on the hook. You can't blame me for voting for a war. I didn't vote for a war. when you actually start requiring members of Congress to vote one way or the other, I think they get much more antsy and much more sort of shy. Yeah. Um, and so, for you know, so for them, I think the you know, not all of them, and you know, con- I mean, con- the congressman kind of might be you know one of the counterexamples, but I think part of what's going on here is that the politics of you know of the moment um, tend not to be especially sympathetic to congressmen and congresswomen who are against. Uses uh, of military force because they're painted as being against the military itself. I think that's radically unfair, but I also think it's you know a big part of how we've gotten to where we are.
1: And it's interesting, you know. I I think there's something to what you're saying. I've had a journalist tell me the same thing that uh, that you know c- the reason that all this power has been ceded from Congress to the president uh, is because co- Congress does not want to have these votes. Uh, but it would be quite a titanic fight if really. You had Congress saying, we won't fund a particular war, or military operation, and the president saying, I, you know, I have the authority to do this and I'm, I need to spend the money to do it, take it from other funds or so forth. Because as you point out, I mean, that is really at the core of Congress's power. And there's no question that the framers intended for the power of the purse to be in the Congress, but particularly in the House of Representatives. Uh, so um, I think it would be very interesting.
2: I mean, I think think that's right. I think it's worth remembering that, you know, the Constitution actually does have one sunset built into it, which is military appropriations, Um, right? That, you know, the no appropriation for the army under Article One is good for more than two years on the theory that every election is supposed to be a referendum on military spending. Um, I think we're well past that, (laughs) um, whether or not we should be. Um, but, you know, I think the, I think the problem again is, um, as, as is true in so many other contexts in this administration, how we've increasingly moved away from the separation of powers and toward the separation of parties, because in a world in which Congress really took its institutional responsibilities seriously, I think you would see a lot more bipartisan pushback, um, regardless of who the president is in circumstances in which the president is claiming powers that congress believes are reserved to you know the legislature in this space
1: yeah i um you know i've got to say separation of powers is something that people have talked about a lot and sometimes you'd hear these random politicians and it's been bipartisan sometimes it'd be republicans talking about the importance of it i don't think it's something that that many people recognize the importance of until the trump administration i think that's making more people realize more more uh, average americans realize oh you know there there's something to this idea of not having too much power in the hands of one person or one entity
2: and, and, and frankly, man, and I think there are plenty of Americans who felt that way during the Obama administration, too. And I think, the, you know, this is the point that we ought to all have common cause on, which is, you know, there are going to be presidents we trust. There are going to be presidents we don't trust. There are going to be administrations we like. There are going to be administrations we don't like. Um, the rule should be the same in both circumstances. And so we should care just as much about institutional constraints on the executive when we like the president um, as we do when we don't
1: it makes a lot of sense. One one last uh, topic before before uh, I let you go. You know there there was a lot of talk about um, whether Trump was actually committing war crimes and when he was you know saying that he would authorize the um bombing of cultural sites and one of our um, you know one of our listeners um you know uh Lolan had asked um is Is there something that could happen to to Trump? Could there be some legal consequence? Could he go to court or be prosecuted in some way if, in fact, he did order a war crime?
2: I mean, the the short answer is um, it would be illegal. Um, We'd be back into one of our favorite topics, which is whether a sitting president can be subject to criminal indictment. Um, You know, I think (laughs) I think we've we've had some discussions about that in the context of the Mueller investigation. Yeah, Um, just a few. But you know, there's no question there's no question would be a violation in the War Crimes Act. I do think. Um, that as we've seen over the last couple of days, you know he got a whole lot of pushback from within the military on this. I mean, I think the you know Secretary Esper, to his credit, came out and said, obviously we're not going to issue any orders to destroy you know cultural sites. Um, the president himself walked it back, which is you know exceedingly rare for him. Um, so you know I think there's a lot of how do I put this? I think there's a lot of bad Trump stuff here. I'm not sure that the you know the, cult, the the threatened war crimes and the threatened disproportionate response um, are quite as high up there as some of the other you know things that he hasn't um, stepped back from, things that he hasn't walked back from in the last few days.
1: Well, wow. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You know, if if our listeners want to uh, read uh, what you wrote and many of the other things you've written, they can go to Just Security, which is at JustSecurity.org org. So, justice, just is J U S T Security uh, You're uh, you're a co I think co editor in chief of that publication. I'm on the 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 board and very proud to be associated with it. And thank you so much uh, for your uh, for your time and your expertise. It's been fantastic.
2: No, thanks for having
1: me. So let's bring in Congressman Ro Khanna. He's a Democrat who represents a district in Silicon Valley in California, and he's been a leader on the issue of reasserting congress's authority regarding the declaration of war uh, he actually was the uh, was the person behind a bill that ultimately passed both houses of congress and was vetoed by trump regarding uh, limitations on on the on the president's uh, role to uh, have used military force in yemen and now he is the author of a bill called no war with iran uh, it is uh, house resolution 5543 and he's going to talk to us about that, uh, as well as the uh, War Powers Resolution that is going to be voted on today, uh, and this is Thursday, January 9th, that we're taping this. Uh, I should also note and, and disclose that Ro Connor was my roommate in law school and a longtime friend, so he's a friend of the podcast who's uh, been on quite a, quite a few times already. So let's bring in Congressman Khanna. Welcome back to the show, Congressman Khanna. Thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, it's good to be on, Renato.
1: So, as a starting point, look, a lot of people are concerned. Uh, what uh, you know, they think that no matter what Trump sa- has said recently, that he's going to lead us into a war against Iran. You know, what is the House doing about that right now?
0: Well, they're right to be concerned. I mean, this isn't a first-time strike. They, we've had a number of instances uh, where the president has come close to striking, uh, and this has ratcheted up the tensions. And so, there's a uh, uh, concerned that uh, either he 's going to intentionally uh, start another uh, uh, conflict or that accidentally a conflict could start, the House is doing several things first today we 're having to w- vote on the war powers resolution uh, that would make it clear that the president doesn 't have the authority uh, to strike Iran. the president 's been relying uh, disingenuously on the two thousand and two authority, which basically gave us the gave the president the authority to str- take out Saddam Hussein and he's claiming that that uh, gives him the authority to uh, take out take any military action that ta- that's in Iraq uh and the house is making it clear that that's not the case that uh, he explicitly does not have the authority to take action against Iran or Iranian officials but then you would say okay let's say we do this and the president just disregards it Wh- where's the uh, hook. I mean, what what can uh, the Congress do short of taking the president to court? And the court may not uh, adjudicate this. And that's where it, the real power of Congress comes, and that's the power of the purse. And uh, my amendment, uh, my bill, which uh, passed the National Defense Authorization, and now will pass the House, would prohibit any funding uh, from going for an offensive war in, against Iran.
1: So let's talk first about the resolution uh, and we've we've already i th- you know our listeners know a little bit about the about the war powers resolution i i in In the Senate, there seems to have been some movement on the Republican side, for example, by senators lee and by, and Paul, who are generally uh protective of congress Congress's role uh, in, uh, declaring war, you know, that's constitutional role. They, they are supportive of that resolution in the Senate. Uh, is your sense that there's more bipartisan support, uh, from, from, you know, more Republican support uh, for the resolution?
0: We're hopeful. There's not going to be much Republican support for the resolution in the house. You may get a few people, uh, and you're, we're going to lose a few Democrats. So we're going to win the vote, but it's not uh, going to be with a lot of, uh, Republicans. The Senate is a different story, Uh, You know, the Senate uh, did have Republicans uh, who passed the War Powers Resolution against Yemen. Uh, Back then, we had Republican support for it as well in the House. Uh, But the hope is that a few of those other senators uh, who were Republicans and voted for the Yemen War Powers Resolution uh, may support this one. It's very encouraging that Rand Paul and Mike Lee uh, are willing to support it, uh, and we're hopeful to get to a a majority. Uh, Of course, the president will probably still disregard uh, the resolution. I mean, it's a concurrent resolution, so it doesn't require a signature, uh, but he can choose to disregard it. Uh, our remedy would be to sue in the Supreme Court then, uh, but, you know, the, whether the Supreme Court is going to adjudicate the matter remains to be seen.
1: Right. And what what? Uh, just so listeners understand what you're referring to, essentially, that the Supreme Court's very reluctant to step in battles between Congress and the president. And of course, the legal process also takes a lot of time. And so, uh, you know, the the president can get us into a war. uh, And, you know, it can take a while for the courts to catch up uh, to that reality. Um, You know, I, 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 one thing that I'm curious about, though, um, you know, is about, you know, you you talked about what your bill would do, um, and the idea of defunding uh, the war. So can you explain to listeners how that would work?
0: This is how we brought the Vietnam War to an end. It was, uh, of course, protests and uh, the uh, movements on the streets, but it was ultimately Congress. Uh, Senator Church uh, in 1969 had an amendment that was passed uh, with the National Defense Authorization Act that uh, zeroed out any funding for Nixon to expand the war to Thailand or Laos or Cambodia. And then in 72, they passed in the Senate... Uh, a provision that said you're basically going to get no funds for troops in Vietnam other than to bring them home. So in the past, Congress has been able to use its power of the purse to stop uh, military actions we don't want. Ultimately, uh, all spending bills have to originate in the House. And if the House says we're simply not going to appropriate the funds, uh, to uh, for an offensive strike on Iran or Iranian officials, then the president, the Pentagon, won't have the money to be able to do it. Uh, and that is basically what my bill does. It says we will not give a dime for any offensive attack against Iran or Iranian officials.
1: And, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm, it's interesting to me now that— um, you know, how is the prospect of that looking? I mean, are you in committee now? Is that right?
0: We're in the committee. That should pass the the House. Again, that's going to have a problem in the Senate because this is not a privileged bill resolution, unlike the War Powers Resolution. So McConnell doesn't have to give a vote on it. But the advantage of passing it in the House is that you actually don't need the Senate. I mean, you, you need the House to appropriate the money. So even if the Senate wants to appropriate the money, they can't without the House. And if we pass it in the House, uh, it can help shape the appropriations process, uh, where then our appropriators need to insist on that and say there's already language that has passed the House. We're simply not going to fund an offensive war in, against Iran.
1: And and are you confident that there's a majority in the House not to fund a war against Iran, even if Trump tries to make a case that there is uh, some sort of national security threat that requires an offensive attack?
0: I'm confident that my bill will pass. I mean, it passed, frankly, before this whole Soleimani killing. uh, And then it was stripped in the conference committee because the Pentagon fought tooth and nail to strip it. Had the bill been there before uh, and had it not been stripped, had we fought harder, uh, the many killing would likely not have happened. The Pentagon, given that prohibition, would not have risked their funding with Congress and wouldn't have recommended the option. Now, the question becomes, let's say the bill passes uh, and we're in the defense appropriations fight. Then it becomes, how hard are we willing to fight? Let's, we we say we're going to zero out offensive uh, uh, funding for an offensive strike, the White House may come back and say, no, that's unacceptable. You have to have some money in there. We aren't going to uh, accept that in the appropriations process. Uh, and then obviously, you know, at some point, you don't, you're not going to shut down the entire American military. Uh, and the question becomes, how much are we willing to fight to get that amendment uh, to that through the appropriations process?
1: So one thing that a lot of folks don't know about you is you're somebody who's been a leader on the issue in Congress of restoring Congress's congressional authority, asserting its congressional role in um, you know in and its authority to ensure that before wars are declared that there's congressional approval. And I know you mentioned earlier uh, in the war in Yemen uh, and the work you had done there. Can you t- can you just tell us a little bit about 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 the work you did on, in that uh, in that conflict before uh, this current conflict with Iran,
0: well, I appreciate that, Renaud, and it's an issue that I'm passionate about. But there are actually quite a few Republicans who are passionate about it as well, and it stems from a concern that we've had uh, over the last. Uh, 15 to 18 years, a number of these endless wars that have cost trillions of dollars. You know, China hasn't been in a war since 1979. We've been in over 40 conflicts. And when you think about the strategy, I mean, the entire Middle East economy is 3.5% of world GDP. Iran is 0.44% of world GDP. We're 21% and China is 15%. Uh, Future historians are going to wonder, what were we thinking being as entangled in the Middle East, which is 3.5% of GDP, when a real challenge was China. And this is why Congress, in its wisdom, gave Congress, the, uh, the, our founders gave Congress the power over war and peace. They didn't want one president making that decision. Uh, and what I've been saying is we need to make sure before we get into these endless conflicts that, that uh, the, the president comes to Congress. In the Yemen situation, it's a huge famine there. Millions of people are Uh, suffering and the Saudis are basically bombing Yemen and we were assisting with that bombing Uh, we got a war powers resolution passed through the House and the Senate uh, and the president even though he vetoed it voluntarily suspended the refueling because of Congress's pressure so it shows that when Congress wants to act uh, we can actually have a major impact Uh, since 9-11 people have been reluctant in Congress to act Uh, They were not reluctant during Vietnam or in the 70s. Congress used to exercise its uh, power very clearly. But since 9-11, there's been a fear that people would be seen as weak on national security, weak on terrorism. And so Congress has largely punted to the executive branch.
1: Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because this this retreat, you know, in terms of giving power uh, over... Uh, the declaration of war that's in you know the power that's granted to to congress in the constitution to the presidency has been a, really a bipartisan exercise uh, over the last decades i mean uh, the you have the authorization um to you know a u w f the authorization to use uh force in iraq and and elsewhere that was done, you know, during the Bush administration. But really, since that time, it's been a bipartisan move. And, you know, when I've talked to journalists about it uh, since the Iraq war, or excuse me. Since the Iran uh, the Iranian operation uh, several days ago, one journalist told me that politicians do not like taking votes on things like uh, like uh, you know using you know offensive use of of uh, military or wars or anything like that. They're happy to sort of just put all of that into the hands of the president and avoid the vote. Do you think there's any truth to that?
0: Well, I think there was a lot of truth to that until probably recent times, and now that the cost of the Iraq War and the escalation of Afghanistan is clear, I think now people are reconsidering that, that constituents do care about us not uh, spending trillions of dollars overseas and being the world's policemen, and rather that that money go into education, infrastructure, health care here at home. But I think for many years, post 9-11, there was a concern that if you were to oppose the president or if you were to vote no, uh, you were not giving the president uh, all the tools that uh, he needed to defend the country. And so politicians didn't want to be uh, perceived as uh, against the United States' uh, security in any way. And what it's really going to take is articulating a alternative vision of American security, that if we view China as our uh, competitor, that uh, we have to invest in many other things and not these endless wars. But uh, it, you're absolutely right that Congress was— Perfectly fine, seething authority to the president uh,
1: since 9-11. Well, you you mentioned a little while ago that that this is something that many Republicans have taken the lead on. I mean, when I when I think about this issue of asserting congressional authority to, you know, to its inter, in sort of reasserting its constitutional role on on the on the on, national security. I think of some folks that are conservative like Rand Paul. And, you know, on the progressive side, you're somebody who's taken a leadership role there. But it's not something that there's been a lot of there's been as much energy on on the Democratic side. I'm curious why why that is.
0: I think because not many people right now are bearing the sacrifice of fighting. So uh, in in Vietnam, you had so many people who were affected by it. Everyone knew someone who uh, had either served or uh, had a friend who had served or feared being drafted. And uh, in Iraq, uh, the, the troops have been withdrawn, uh, drawn down significantly. In Afghanistan, they've been drawn down significantly. Uh, so it's not uh, on people's minds as immediate. Uh, obviously, Americans are still being killed, and Americans in, a, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and we see that, uh, these kind of strikes put Americans at uh, a greater risk, uh, but it hasn 't uh, been as much on the forefront of the public 's mind uh, given the few number of people who are serving relative to you know when the iraq war started
1: yeah it 's interesting. I think this is an issue that doesn 't have the the typical left right right divide that a lot of other issues do it's it 's something where there 's a lot there 's energy from progressives like yourself there 's been some energy uh, on the right trying to restore a different balance. And one thing I'm curious about is, what what is it that led you to be very focused on this issue, not just in, in this particular case with Iran, but also in, with the war in Yemen?
0: Well, you know, my grandfather uh, was part of uh, Gandhi's independence movement in India. I was born here in Philadelphia in 76, but my parents immigrated from India in the late 60s, early 70s. And I've met a number of times, my maternal grandfather uh, and his uh, teachings and Gandhi's teachings had an influence on me in terms of standing up for human rights and uh, and, and dialogue and peace. And then I started off my career running against the Iraq War in 2003 in a Democratic primary. I got killed, as you remember. I lost 70 to 20, but uh, you know that uh, instinct of standing up against uh, uh, military interventionism uh, overseas has has stayed with me, and it's something that. Uh, I've been passionate about in in congress
1: i am curious um you know a lot of a lot of um uh, democrats are 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 concerned because they heard for example you know the you know the president was threatening um to bomb cultural sites. Um, what what more can be done in terms of oversight of how uh, how force is being used? You know, separate and apart from you know whether there's funding or a war powers resolution, you know, what can Congress do to to make sure that our power is being exercised in a responsible way?
0: Well, that was so outrageous. The president uh, tweeting about uh, hitting fifty two cultural sites. Of course, it's the 1954 Hague Convention on Cultural Property that prohibits that. And the irony is that it was George W. Bush who pushed to get that passed in 2008 from the Senate. And we weren't a party to it until Bush got us to be a party in 2008. So it just shows how far the Republican Party has come, unfortunately, in uh, 12 years. I mean, you've gone from a place where George W. Bush, who, uh, of course, made the blunder with, with Iraq, but even his administration was pushing for us to be part of the Hague Convention. And now you have. Donald Trump basically uh, disregarding that convention and threatening to bomb cultural sites. Uh, fortunately as much of, as I disagree with some of the people around Trump, uh, Secretary Esper and Pompeo, I have found in my time at the Armed Services Committee that often the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State will come and try to walk back or massage or uh, spin the president 's uh, tweets, and they understand uh, that uh, the rhetoric is beyond the pale and so what we have tried to do is have conversations with the Secretary of Defense uh, during oversight with the Secretary of State to get them to uh, be a check in the within the executive branch uh, on this president uh, it 's important to realize one of the offenses of the president is not just that he 's disregarded Congress but he 's actually also disregarded the the civil servants uh, at the State Department National Security Council to make these processes. So the checks of him within, on him within the executive branch are far fewer than the type of process most presidents go through. Nonetheless, uh, the best oversight with this particular president is to really be uh, talking to the people uh, close to him in those positions of power and trying to uh, make sure that they don't do anything that would be catastrophic.
1: We're getting close to a, a presidential election. You know, the Iowa caucuses uh, and New Hampshire primary aren't far away. I know you're a co-chair of one of the campaigns, the Sanders campaign, and there's a lot of people who are afraid that that Trump is going to be using military force as a way of either distracting from bad stories or changing narratives in this election. Um, is is there anything more that that we can do to? Make sure that our, you know, that the power isn't misused that way, or, or to deter him from doing that.
0: Well, passing this war powers resolution and prohibiting funding will go a long way. But ultimately, we need an electorate that's going to hold a politician accountable for that type of action. I mean, it's very, very tough to, in our system, constrain uh, proactively. A president from launching any strike uh, and claiming self-defense you can after the fact uh, say that that was unconstitutional you can try to limit funding but the president does have a fair amount of latitude in strikes for self-defense and unfortunately often the pres- presidents have gotten a bump in their polling uh, including this president when he struck Syria uh, in and and there's been a rally around the flag effect and so Our job is to convince the electorate that this is not in our national interest, that what the president's doing is not just a possible distraction, but also taking away resources from investments in our own country and uh, putting our country at risk. And we have to win that argument with the public.
1: Yeah, I I will say that I think part of the issue is that the public feels overwhelmed with the amount of news and crises and problems that are created by the Trump administration. I think that, you know, certainly when I talk to my, whether it's my followers or the listeners and patrons here in the podcast or elsewhere, or, you know, what I'm getting is that people don't know you know, what to react to and what's a real danger. I constantly get calls, even from uh, elected officials, asking me, Well, is this something I should be reacting to? Is this a problem? And it, it's, it seems that it's very difficult for um, the public to even know, you know, whether they can trust the government. I mean, it's interesting. There is such distrust immediately of the intelligence, uh, you know, assertions that were made by the Trump administration because we're at a point where the President of the United States and his administration have really no credibility with a lot of the public.
0: And the president's explanation is not transparent here, right? I mean, here's the real thing of what's going on in Iran. I mean, there are people within the administration, legitimate, some of the legitimate people, I would disagree with them, but they have harbored an intense resentment against Iran since 1979 uh, when Iran took our hostages. They think this regime has been responsible for killing Americans, which it has, uh, Soleimani killed a lot of Americans, that's, those are just facts, and they really uh, wanted to get rid of this guy who they thought was a bad actor who had killed uh, people they knew or, or or American soldiers who they served with. And if the president had come to Congress and said, this was a bad guy and we're taking him out uh, because that's what we need to do, and try to get congressional approval, or even if he had not gotten congressional approval but was honest about the motives... Uh, he'd have more credibility. But to concoct this idea of imminent self-defense, when mostly for self-defense, you wouldn't take out the number two person in another country. You would take out the munitions of the, uh, in, in Iraq, or you would hit a warehouse, or you may hit the local militias on the ground. Uh, I think that's what's hurt his credibility. That's why you had Senator Lee and Senator Paul right after the briefing come out and say, this is ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, and so it's... Uh, there, there is, there's no uh, trust there between him and, and members of Congress and the American public.
1: So, if voters and listeners here are interested in learning more about these issues, what, what do you think that people should be doing uh, to stay on top of this? And to, um, and, and what action? You know, who should they? What, what should they be advocating for? To also when they're talking to their elected representatives.
0: Well, they should be advocating for Congress asserting our power to do everything in our power to stop uh, the president from starting a war in Iran or elsewhere and that means exercising our power over uh the funding and, and let, let's be clear i mean i voted against it but this congress overwhelmingly approved trump's military budget which is 120 billion dollars more than what obama had so you can't on the one hand say we're restricting this president and then vote to give funding to the president for all his priorities. And I think people watching should pay far more attention to the votes Congress is casting on some of these war and peace issues and what Congress is actually doing in terms of uh, restricting this president. Uh, I know these issues sound more arcane, but there was a time in our country in the height of Vietnam where ordinary people, ordinary citizens were following it. I mean, Senator Church was a hero around the country for what he did to try to stop the Vietnam War uh, through funding mechanisms. So I would just say to really be aware of what Congress is is doing on these issues and to demand that we do more.
1: I think that's great. I I hope your efforts are successful. Thank you very much for joining us, Congressman. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Renato. Always great to be on.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay On Topic.